The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. TechTown Detroit is a business incubator and accelerator, helping tech startups and local businesses launch and grow. TechTown supports businesses with co-working, office, meeting, and event space. They also connect entrepreneurs to resources and learning and networking events in Detroit. TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me today. And coming up on today's program, an amazing new exhibition opening up at the uh, M Contemporary Gallery in Ferndale called Despite It All We Never Learn. It's a solo exhibition of photographs and audio stories by my friend Kenny Karpov taking a look at his four years that he spent helping refugees in the Mediterranean Sea. It's amazing stuff. The stories are unbelievable. You're going to want to hear this interview. That's coming up on The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this Wednesday. And of course, uh, take a couple of minutes out of your day. I know everybody's watching the testimony today, uh, but I think this is a story that needs to be told. There's an event coming up and a new exhibit that actually opens up on Friday called Despite It All, We Never Learn. It's going to be at the M Contemporary Gallery, which is on Nine Mile in Ferndale, just across the street from the Ferndale Public Library, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, the creator of this exhibit is my friend Kenny Karpoff. He is a photographer, writer, storyteller, and also somebody who spent a lot of time assisting refugees in the Mediterranean Sea. Kenny, it's a pleasure to see you again. It's been a long time, um, and uh, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Craig. It has been a long time. It, it has, and and just for full disclosure, Kenny has done some photography work for me over the years, back when I was at WDET and also when I was at the Land Bank, but somebody I know, and he came up to me one day and just said, hey, I'm going over to the Mediterranean. I'm going to be working on a boat and for some organizations that are helping refugees that are dealing with conflicts, of course, all across the Middle East and Northern Africa in particular. Um, this turned into a multi-year thing, Kenny. Yeah. So essentially, uh, I originally figured I was going to be over there for about two to four months because uh, I subletted my apartment in New York. Uh, the guy who I subletted to, he worked around the corner, went to school around the corner. So he was essentially emailing, texting me like every couple of days, like, are you going to stay longer? I want in your apartment because he really liked it and it was perfect location for him. So after like uh, four months, I ended up staying another six months. I stayed another eight months. And then essentially I stayed four and a half years. Well, and at some point, I mean, it's obviously the importance of the work that you're doing. Um, and, and uh, you know, you worked for organizations like Sea Watch, uh, Doctors Without Borders, a number of other organizations that assist refugees in conflict zones around the country. And, and the Mediterranean Sea has really 
really become sort of the flashpoint, the international flashpoint for this entire refugee crisis that we're seeing at the southern border of the United States uh, in Mexico, obviously because of the conflicts in places like Libya. The Mediterranean Sea has been a place where people take their lives into their own hands to escape the problems that they're dealing with. No, you're you're exactly correct. Uh, essentially, there was um, another avenue that was open for migration between Turkey and Greece that closed off when essentially Greece uh, put uh, sort of government ships into the water that deterred everyone to the Mediterranean. And so, around 2000, like late 2014, that's when everything started happening, and we've seen over a million people make the crossing now. Um, where the deaths now are around 16,000 over five years, which is an insane number. And sadly, this doesn't get much press anymore at all. I mean, like in Europe, it does here and there, but I feel the only time that we sort of hear a story or see a flashpoint uh, about the crisis is when, you know, like a boat overturns and hundreds of people die and that's it. Well, and, and I want to remind folks again, this ex- exhibition um, is going to have photographs, of course, a lot of the collected stories that you collected from the people that you met uh, during your work over there, the, the people that you were rescuing from the sea in many instances. And, and I just want to read something here because uh, this whole book, there's a book that goes along with this, I should remind folks. The book is called Despite It All, We Never Learn. Uh, Kenny Karpov, my guest right now. This is from Kambili, who's a 28-year-old from Nigeria who says, once we arrived at Saba in Libya, there were 40 of us in various cars being delivered to a Libyan man. After leaving the car, we were taken by this man, and he locked us all in a small room where there was no food, no water, and we barely saw daylight for about 30 days. I was only able to get out because I was one of the healthier men. Some of the Libyans let me smoke with them and said they would help me get to the sea. Most of the men in the center were very horrible people, but but there were a few that saw us as humans and wanted to help. I met many people who had been there for more than nine months, all because they couldn't pay. I saw three people die in the center because of a lack of food and from gunshot wounds, which were very common. Myself, I remained there for eight weeks. Then one day, when no one was watching, I managed to escape through the bathroom window. I used to be an athlete. I heard secondhand of the people's success in the seas while in Libya. I told myself to get into the boat. It's so bad on land, I'd rather put my faith in the sea with God. Whether I die or get rescued, anything is better than Libya. And there's a ton of stories about Libya in particular and how these people are preyed upon uh, while they're waiting for some escape plan. Yeah, so essentially, um, I've met thousands of people like him over the over the four and a half years. Everyone who I sat with, who pulled me down to talk to them or just, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, like lend an ear, like they all spoke about uh, the torture and the rape that they endured um, over over the course of like weeks to years. Some of these people stayed because, you know, they essentially abuse them and bleed them dry in their families of money. And that's why Libya is a multi-billion, multi-billion dollar um, human trafficking ring, essentially. I mean, they it is modern slavery at its worst over there. And that's what I saw firsthand when I went to Libya and when I met with these people on the boats, they spoke in just horrific detail about like, literally, like you said, putting your lives into the sea. And a lot of them have never swam before. They've never seen anything this vast before. And this was their only way out, essentially. Well, and, and you look at this. I mean, we're talking about people who are getting beaten, raped, killed. 
uh, all their money being taken, whatever resources they have, uh, being forced to work in many instances just to maybe get a slot in one of these boats that are dangerous. I mean, we remember the Cuban flotilla back in the back in the 1980s and the number of people that were trying to escape to to Florida from Cuba. This is a much more perilous journey across the Mediterranean to get to Italy. Yeah. So essentially, um, it would take about four days if they use the raft that um, that they are pushed upon. Essentially, um, this raft is around 800 euros. It comes from Habibi.com, and it's from China. And they essentially. Uh, buy a, a, a load of them and they ship them over and they put these people on this. And and these dinghies are made from a very, very thin um, material, uh, like a very thin rubber. And you can just puncture it with like a pen. And there's hundreds, anywhere from like 100 to about 180 people on these rafts. And they send them out in pitch darkness at midnight and sadly, I mean, the smugglers, they'll, they'll catch up to them. They'll either drop their engine or they'll actually um, cut a hole into it so, so that they will drown. Or sometimes there are smugglers who, uh, who do help and they actually will tell them where to go essentially, to maybe kind of come across um, our sort of uh, viewpoints. Well, you're, the boat that you were on found a lot of these people. We're on the lookout for them to help them. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of interested to know what the typical reaction was from somebody when they did get plucked out of the sea onto this boat, your boat, which gave them safe passage uh, and a little bit of, of hope uh, because they must have been scared to death. Yeah, I mean, that fear was still resonant on their face um, as soon as you know, we told them to stop the engine. And they and don't they know who started, you are at that point. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, they really don't. Like, there were there were several instances where uh, they uh, they saw us, our rib, and they actually uh, sped sped forward away from, like, us. So we actually had to, like, tell them to stop the engine, take the key out. And then, you know, we have a translator on board who talks French and Arabic. And then finally, you know, they would have a relief. They would you know, start just, you know, chatting back and forth about, you know, like where we're going, you know, what's going to happen to us, um, you know, who we are, everything sort of like in between with that. And, you know, that that was like a really beautiful moment to kind of, you know, to kind of hear like all these languages, like all these little whispers amongst themselves, you know, talking. And then, of course, you know, once we started doing the shuffle from their boat to our boat, you know, they're so thankful. Like that was that was just like such a such a beautiful moment to have to like share for me um you know they would like oh thank you you know for rescuing me you know like where are we going next you know can i you know can i like tell you something that happened to me you know like a lot of them just wanted to tell their story and i think that's why um this book just came so natural to me to be honest um because obviously i was over there as a photographer but then you know every Everything kind of like, uh, you know, was changing over the course of like the first year and a half or two years. I saw myself as more of a storyteller, really wanting to, um, you know, heighten their voice in the crisis and sort of, you know, give back to them for entrusting their stories with me. Well, and and it does seem that these stories are often overlooked. I mean, we might, you know, if if the networks are covering it, they'll have some television, but they've got time limitations on, on what they can do. By chronicling all these individual stories and putting them into one volume, um, there's some really powerful stuff in here. And, and you, you rescue a lot of people from the sea, but a lot of these boats, there'll be people that didn't make it. Um, and, you know, 
the crew on your boat is left to sort of sort through this and figure this out. And they're giving up everything, everything to find a way to escape to a better life. Um, what part of their stories do you think that most people who don't have to think about this need to know? I think the part that really gets overlooked, and I talk about this actually in the book and when I've done a couple uh, readings around the city, is people don't understand why they're fleeing. Like they really just kind of, I think, see a name or, you know, see a light skinned or dark uh, skin color. And they immediately think, you know, that they're, you know, just migrants, that they're just wanting a job, which in fact, that is not the case at all. Like they are fleeing all kinds of like um, persecution, um, war, human trafficking, civil wars, conflicts, um, I mean, you know, Boko Haram is still around. There's other, like, ISIS offshoots in Africa that will burn your villages. And obviously, you know, there's people that, you know, um, you know, uh, that can't be themselves. You know, they can't be openly gay in a lot of these countries. So, you know, um, obviously they take it upon themselves to, you know, wanting to be around people that they feel they're going to be respected by. Well, and it also seems to me that one of the things we don't think about is just these are not just poor people. These are not people that don't have opportunity in their country. These are teachers, physicians, anybody. If you're displaced, you need to go somewhere else. You're willing to take some of these risks. This is not just, you know, uh, the poorest of the poor. These are just everyday citizens who need a, another new opportunity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I met tons of people that, that were doctors from Syria, dentists from Iraq, um, shopkeepers, restaurant owners from Africa. I mean, they all wanted a better life for themselves in Europe or anywhere away from like what they were enduring, obviously in their homeland or on their onward journey through Sahara or in Libya. They all wanted something, something that we, we have and we take for granted, I feel sometimes as well. I should remind folks, my guest right now is Kenny Karpov. He is a photographer and, uh, of course, a, a storyteller. He has an exhibition that is going to be opening on Friday. Uh, it's running through December 14th, and it is going to be the opening reception is coming up on Friday. Uh, that's tomorrow night, or is it Thursday? Thursday night. Friday night. Friday night. So this is actually airing on Wednesday. So it is Friday night, and uh, it's going to be running through December 14th at the M Contemporary Gallery. That's at 205 East Nine Mile Road. And again, it's a solo exhibition of photographs and audio stories. Talk about how you presented it, because um, I know that you were in there hanging some stuff earlier. I saw some pictures that you put on social media talking yep. about getting it ready. Uh, how is this going to be presented to folks? So essentially, um, Melanie, uh, who's the curator of M Contemporary, we sat down months in advance and went through thousands of digital and film photographs. And, and it took us, I'm not kidding, like almost three to four months to narrow everything down to about 21 pictures. And we have audio and then GoPro footage. So we wanted to have a sort of concrete overview of sort of like what these people endured over there. And we didn't want to shy away from the reality. So there's a lot of imagery that is very sensitive, um, but it's the reality. Uh, and this is what I saw. And obviously, you know, this is what they endured. And I really wanted to convey that message through the exhibition, but also have it very well-rounded. You know, I mean, like, there's a lot of stories from people from Pakistan, women from Africa, women from Syria, families from Iraq. You know, we really wanted to present this that it's just not African people, 
that it's just not people from like Syria or Iraq that it is. I mean, like there's people from Bangladesh and Eritrea that are that are on display that are in the book. There's people from Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, like that, you know, they're, they're all fleeing like crazy atrocities, like all over Africa and the Middle East. Well, and of course, they're often caught in, in this trap because, uh, you know, Europe is having very similar debate uh, that the United States is having right now over immigration and whether or not refugees are going to be given the status that they that they deserve, frankly. Uh, you know, the International <laughs> Coalition on Human Rights says, hey, everybody's got a right to move. Everybody's got a right to do something. Uh, this is something that we have uh, codified in, in international law. A lot of countries seem to be wanting to backtrack on that. Yeah, that's what you see a lot with Italy. Um, they were under uh, their interior minister, uh, Matteo Salvini. Essentially, he ran on a very sort of Trumpian campaign against refugees. And his sort of byline against this was that we're the human traffickers and these people are bringing down his economy. And essentially, you know, these black people are, you know, in these parks are, you know, selling drugs and raping the Italian women, which we've is heard, completely we've heard that false. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, exactly. We hear it all the time from our president. So it is completely, utterly false. A lot of them are just want basic rights. They want basic freedom, what we take so dearly. I want to know. Uh, from your perspective, Kenny, I mean, how you think you have changed as, as a result of this experience? Because as you said, this started out as going to be a few-month thing, and I remember talking with you about it at the time, just saying, wow, that takes guts to go do that. It turned into a much longer project than you expected. How are you different now? I would say when I came back, um, I have a lot more empathy, uh, for sure, for the people that I met. Um, I find myself... Uh, like wanting less in life for myself and giving more um, to the people because of what I experienced over there and what I saw firsthand. Because I also worked in in Iraq and I worked in Syria and I worked in Ukraine. So I've worked in a few conflict areas and I really saw the way that, you know, a lot of these people are caught in between, especially children um, going, going with Iraq or Syria or Ukraine, you know, like they're caught in the middle of this war and all these people have, have, nothing to do with this they really just want to go about their normal day and continue to have education continue to have a job continue to have a place to come home to continue to have food on the table and i think seeing that for the first hand just like really changed me that they didn't have any of this and i feel a lot of the times you know if it was up to us to sort of like leave somewhere we would we would bitch so much about like losing our possessions, losing our livelihood. But like they literally did it in hours or in a day. They left everything behind and came with nothing. And what I mean by that is when we rescued these people in the Mediterranean, a lot of them were completely nude. They did not have anything. And when I'd interview them, they're like, I don't need anything. I need my legs. I need my heart and I need my eyes. That's what everyone always kind of, you know, talked about with me um, on the ship, you know, that they, they don't they don't want anything from like me or the organization or anything. They really just want to help their families or help themselves with like a better life. And I think that 
that is the biggest thing I feel like we overlook sometimes. And I feel like that's what changed me a lot but by seeing that firsthand. Well, seeing it firsthand, and, and this is an important part of this, because obviously you want people to get as close to that experience as possible with an exhibition like this one. It is impossible, though, to recreate that firsthand experience. How do you make sure that people at least have a better idea about what it was really like? I think it comes back to showing the reality again, to be honest. You know, um, having the photographs that... You know, yeah, they are shocking, but they're not for shock value. And I think that's a lot of the times, sadly, you know, mainstream media has gone to. You know, they go for that shocking image, you know, and like on the front paper of like the father holding his lifeless, you know, child, you know, by the sea. And like that's, I mean, yeah, that's the reality, but that's not the whole story. And I feel that's when people turn away because they, because they see it so often. And I feel like, you know, if these crises are at five years, which we are at now with Mediterranean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to happen. And the narrative, you know, needs to change. It needs to change from us. It needs to change from the media. And so I feel with, you know, putting GoPro footage, putting audio footage, and these are firsthand accounts. Um, and there's, you know, and just like in the book, there's over 80 some stories and there's a lot of overlap with their stories. And I did that on purpose because if you're reading this book, you're saying to yourself, oh my God, there's there's 80 people that are talking about what they endured. And it's very similar to this woman, to this person, to this child. One of the neat things, though, that I've noticed, and I picked this book up yesterday. I got a copy of it from you a couple of days ago when we ran into each other. Um, and so I started reading this last night. And one of the things that keeps coming back to me is that despite these horrific stories people are telling about why they fled, what they endured uh, to get to Europe, what they endured crossing the Mediterranean, there's almost always at the end a hopeful message like, I'm going to get a chance to do something better. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's just the triumph of the human spirit aspect of this book is pretty fascinating. No, it is. And, and I mean, like I said, I, you know, I would seek out people that looked at me and I talked to them or they would essentially like tug on my jacket for me to sit down with them. And obviously the first year it was more sort of like structured, but then after the, after the first year, I, I really just let the recorder go and I let them tell me whatever they wanted to tell me. And I never pushed anything about, you know, like what happened to them in Libya, what happened to their homeland. Um, but essentially a lot of them felt so comfortable that they told me everything about, you know, why they fled, obviously their onward journey, what happened to them in Libya. But it was great that a lot of them talked to talk so passionately about like what they wanted to do in Europe, you know, like education was a huge one for them because obviously with the conflicts, you know, lives people have not been in school for, you know, for almost close to a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously the civil war in Libya, people have not been, essentially in school since uh, the overthrow of Gaddafi. Um, and then, you know, now there's three or four militant organizations that essentially run Libya. And then you got parts of Africa that essentially, um, what they tell me, in, tell me in the book is, you know, their families have passed on from a car accident or one of them has died from a preventable disease. And essentially it's, it's culturally where um, the eldest then, teenager essentially takes it upon himself to you know take over the family business as a farm or a market but essentially you know they lose that and you know they go on this journey at 14 to like 18 years old which is so insane to me well kenny karpov my guest once again his exhibit despite it all we never learn is going to be opening on friday night in ferndale of course a book by the same title despite it all we never learn um 
a number of organizations. You have lists at the at the end of the book of all the different organizations that you were working with uh, throughout this four year journey here. Um, what do they need from people that actually decide after they read something like this, see something like this? What do they need from people in terms of being able to do their job more effectively? I think what people really need to take away from sort of the organizations and reading the book and the exhibition is, you know, that they survive on donations and they are non-governmental organizations. So so they don't get governmental money whatsoever. It's all small donations. It's like a Bernie Sanders campaign with them. <laughs> um, so, you know, donate, go to the website, you know, check out the campaigns. If you can donate, donate. Uh, um, a lot of the organizations are grassroots, so more like a Sea Watch, more like a Juventa, more like a Mediterrane. Um, someone like me, who has no background, who has never been on a ship in my life since I went over there, that does take an You can volunteer. By the way. You can volunteer and go over and work on these ships. Some of them are two weeks to three weeks. Some some are three to four months, and. I worked for about eight or nine different organizations over four and a half years. And every single organization was amazing. They had, um, they were very dignified towards the people that we were rescuing. And so if anyone ever feels that, you know, they want to make a difference, like check out the websites of some of these organizations and see if you can donate or, you know, try and get your community involved, you know, um, you know, talk to me about doing a reading or, you know, um, bring refugees from your community and have them tell their stories. I mean, I think that's that's what's needed right now in Detroit. I mean, like we're a very diverse community, and I feel like we don't do enough of this right now, to be honest. Like we don't do enough of storytelling from like our minorities here, like at all. Well, that's maybe the next phase. You never know. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Karpov has been my guest again. His new exhibition opens up on Friday at the M Contemporary Gallery in Ferndale. It's called "Despite It All, We Never Learn." You can also find the book "Despite It All, We Never Learn" by my guest Kenny. Uh, that's available as well. But check out the exhibition. Congratulations, by the way, on getting this up and going, and uh, hopefully, it opens a lot of eyes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. All right. Kenny Karpov, photographer and storyteller, joining us on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. And that's going to do it for the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit for today. Thank you very much for tuning in. And again, I hope you do check out that exhibit. It run through, runs through December 14th at the M Contemporary Gallery, 205 East Nine Mile in Ferndale. A quick reminder, coming up tomorrow on the program, I'm expecting to have Warren Evans, County Executive from Wayne County, joining me on the program to talk about a new indigent defense program that they're implementing here in Wayne County. It's supposed to help ease some of the logjam and some of the problems that people who can't afford counsel deal with when trying to make sure that they get adequate defense in court. So that should be an interesting conversation. Look for that tomorrow. Don't forget, I've been watching the testimony all week. There's a lot to discuss. We will get to that on Friday when we do the week that was on Deadline Detroit. That's always an interesting discussion, and hopefully that has become appointment listening or viewing for you as we do stream it live on Facebook, typically about 1130 on Fridays. So if you happen to be around and you have your computer on on Facebook, you can see us do it live there. It'll, of course, be on the Deadline Detroit YouTube page as well and available on DeadlineDetroit.com. So make sure you check out the week that was. It's available as a podcast, of course, as well. So it's one of my favorite things to do each and every week. If you want to send me an email, please do. Show at gmail.com. You can find me as well on Twitter, on Facebook, on Snapchat, on LinkedIn. 
uh, on Instagram. All of those places, it's not hard to find me, although I have not yet signed up for that new social media network that apparently Wikipedia is putting out there. That should be interesting. Maybe we'll talk about that pretty soon as well. All right, thanks for listening today. We'll talk again tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.